this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. Today, I'm going to interview Josh. So I figured this would be a great way for the listeners to get to know both me and Josh a little bit better. We'll do another episode where Josh interviews me. Uh, but, you know, Josh Berger, welcome to the podcast as a guest for the first time as, instead of being a host. Um, and I'm excited to get into this and, and understand um, and have the listeners understand your story more, um, how you like to practice. You know, what do you think are some of the you know, important elements of mental toughness, um, etc. cetera? Um, but like we do in most of our interviews, Let's begin with how you got involved with tennis, how you got involved with coaching, and then and then sports psychology. Awesome. Well, yeah, it feels uh, feels a little weird to be on the other side of of things, um, but it's uh, no. When when you brought up this this idea today of, uh, or when you brought up this idea of of us, you know, interviewing each other and you know, getting a little bit deeper into our our stories, I, I thought it was a, a great a great idea and a great opportunity to, you know, to sort of explain a little bit more of the origin story of, you know, how I got into this position and, um, you know, where my perspective comes from and, you know, same, same for you when, um, when your episode comes out. Um, so I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut. Um, I played a lot of different sports growing up, um, was always really into sports. I, I followed sports, um, very closely from a pretty young age, had, um, radio in my room would listen to, uh, WFAN, which is New York sports talk radio, um, where they'd talk about the Mets and the giants, the New York giants, which are two, two teams that I followed closely. Um, very closely, uh, used to go get the, the New York times and, you know, listen and, uh, go and, and just read the, the sports section. Um, and w- I played different sports. I played soccer, I played baseball, I played basketball and I enjoyed all of them, but I was sort of in the middle of the pack to even the bottom of the pack in, in these sports where I enjoyed them, but I never really maybe worked as hard as some of the other kids never maybe had the natural abilities as some of the other kids. And I didn't really stand out compared to my peers. Um, and as I was thinking about this a little more and how tennis came about, um, I, I think it came about in a couple of different ways. Number one, I always had a ping pong table in my house. Um, my dad was always into ping pong, you know, ever since he was a teenager and, uh, ever since the day I was born, we had a ping pong table in my house. So we used to, we used to play, I used to play a lot of ping pong still do, um, but go down to the basement and play with my dad and, uh, listen to records of the Beatles and a lot of different, um, a lot of different types of records and play a lot of ping pong. And that, that probably happened, you know, starting in even elementary school or even beforehand, but, you know, and on a very recreational um, basis would, would play that. And then I'd say towards the end of elementary school, going into the beginning of middle school, I started doing some more organized tennis. Um, I had done tennis, you know, very, very recreationally playing with my dad, you know, playing around a little bit, but never actually knew much of the sport. Um, my dad was also a fan, has always been a fan of the sport. So I think tennis had been on, you know, at times in the house, Um, but when I started playing, um, in a group, I think it was probably around fifth grade, um, it clicked. And this was something that, you know, 
from playing the sport, it was, it felt very different from being involved in team sports. It felt like something that I could excel at more. And I, I certainly enjoyed it more. Um, so started getting more um, involved with the sport, started playing from, you know, went from one day a week to two, three, four days a week. Um, started, I think I played my first tournament um, in eighth grade, um, which again is, is later than some of the other kids who maybe, you know, started playing um, tournaments at, you know, eight or nine or whatever age. Um, so started playing tournaments then 14 in the 14 and under category um, or age group rather. Um, and, you know, was, I was, I was a, a sort of a middle of the pack player in certain ways within USTA New England. Um, but, you know, my, my playing style, I was always say was, was much more on the consistent side, much more on the, let's, you know, let's be consistent. Let's get balls back. Let's play defense rather than trying to blow people off the court with my aggressive player or being able to, you know, use my shots as really a weapon. Um, then, you know, played, played high school tennis. I would say during that time is, is really where I, I grew more. Um, I started taking private lessons. I was playing more USTA tournaments, playing high school tennis. Um, and during this, this time, you know, really started to started thinking more and thinking more about the mental aspects of the game, noticing, I think I've mentioned this in the past, but noticing that some of these kids that had really nice forehands and backhands wouldn't always, weren't always winning. And even some of the kids that I would train with on a regular basis, um, you know, I'd play with them a couple times a week and they'd be swearing, throwing rackets. And not to say that I'd never acted this way, because there are certainly incidents where I did, but through playing some of these people on a, you know, very regular basis every week, sometimes multiple times a week, it became very clear to me that this type of behavior was, was highly detrimental to tennis performance. Um, and I, I know I've talked in the show before about this, but also during this time, during high school, had the chance to really get in a lot of repetition of match play. I would do these Saturday night tournaments at Trumbull Racket Club in Connecticut on a weekly basis, um, would, would do match play, was, was playing tournaments. So I would say that's when I, you know, sort of put in the, started really putting in the hours of getting that experience playing match play and of um, becoming a more experienced player. And I was getting better and better, but still, you know, I, I felt that, my game, you know, in certain ways, wasn't matching up to some of the the better kids in the area. Um, maybe in certain ways because they got a, a head start, but just didn't feel like I necessarily had the weapons. Um, but I would say from, you know, sort of the end of high school time, noticed that my I was able to, you know, really fight, really be gritty, and pull out some of the longer three set matches and sort of wear down some of the the kids who. Um, you know, who, who maybe had bigger weapons um, over the course of a match. Um, I, so, so this is this during the end of high school is when I read Winning Ugly and um, a book that I, I've referenced, you know, we've referenced many times in the past. And then when I got to college at Clark University, um, that, that's really where things kind of went to that next level in terms of wanting to pursue sports psychology um, as a career. Um, so Clark University is really a school with a, a, a big, 
um, psychology history. Uh, Sigmund Freud came to Clark in, I believe, in the, in the early 1900s and really introduced psychoanalysis to the U.S. at Clark. Um, we have a statue of Sigmund Freud on campus, right, right in Red Square, um, in a very, it's very prominent area. So, um, psychology is also the biggest major. So I started studying psychology and while playing, you know, while playing on the college team, um, you know, the, 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 my two interests in my um, sort of started to started to merge. And it was also an interesting time at, at Clark, where, you know, being a part of the team where I was a, a, a part of the rebuilding phase for the team, where in the, the few years leading up to um, getting there, get, getting to the team in, 20, in 2011, um, the team hadn't won any conference matches. Um, and in my first year, when alongside um, a few other freshmen, um, we actually we had a very long run of you know of many many wins in a row, and we actually got all the way to the conference finals, where we lost to MIT, um, who are sort of the perennial, um, the, the perennial, they, they dominate the conference perennially. Um, so, anyways. It was during my time at Clark where I started learning more about this field of sports psychology and knew that, hey, I wanted to, I want to um, pursue this. Um, so I was, I was also coaching during the summers. I, I started coaching at Patterson Country Club um, summer after my freshman year, summer after my sophomore year as well, um, and started learning more about this field and ended up ended up going to Cal State Long Beach right after um, right after I finished Clark and did a master's there in sports psychology um, where I decided to do my dissertation into mental toughness in college tennis where I interviewed 11 college coaches um, at the division one level these are assistant coaches and head coaches all about mental toughness and how is mental toughness how, how do the, how do these college coaches define mental toughness? What are some attributes of mentally tough tennis players? How can mental toughness be built? Um, and then also questions like how they learned, you know, how they developed their mental toughness and their philosophies on mental toughness, and then certain resources that could be used as well. Um, and through this experience, uh, you know, the, during those couple of years when I was living in Long Beach during my master's, I wasn't playing as much competitive tennis. I was, you know, it would play some with friends, but um, after, you know, after the four years of college tennis took a bit of a break in terms of competitive tennis. Um, but however, this, that process of going through the dissertation reignited that, that spark that I, you know, there, I was spending a lot of time thinking about college tennis, talking to college tennis coaches and made me feel that, you know, I, I in some capacity wanted to get back into um, competitive tennis and collegiate tennis. Um, and after finishing my, my master's, I, I took a job for about six months up in Northern California um, through the Bay Club, which is a series of athletic facilities in the West Coast and was working at two clubs there, San Francisco Tennis Club. San Francisco Tennis Club, which was affiliated with the Bay Club, which is a huge club with 24 courts where we had a challenger tournament, as well as um, Bay Club Ross Valley, um, which is more of a family oriented club. Um, but then after that, moved back to the 
East Coast to Connecticut, to Fairfield, where I um, got back into collegiate tennis and, and coaching at the collegiate level um, at Sacred Heart University. Um, and I was there for two years as the assistant men's and women's coach, men's and women's tennis coach there. Um, and in my, it was in my second year there that I decided, you know, I am passionate about coaching tennis, but I really want to um, start working in the field of sports psychology more and, and doing more work within sports psychology. Within my tennis coaching, I would incorporate sports psychology themes. I would, you know, try to utilize what I'd learned, um, but I wasn't necessarily getting the specific sports psychology experience as much. And that's when I, in October of 2019 is when I launched my business, Tiebreaker Psych. Um, and as we all know, a few months later, uh, the world changed. Um, the pandemic hit in March, or you know, the pandemic really came to a head in, in March of 2020. Just, I guess, about five five months later, um, and you know, th this was still still in the early stages of my business, um, of me launching the business, um, and from the from Sacred Heart's perspective, where I was coaching at the time, um, our season came to an immediate end, as did you know, just about every, as, as did every other collegiate sports team. Um, and at that time, you know, I, I tried to view it as much as possible, though it was tough and though it was, you know, challenging experience, um, tried to view it as much as possible as an opportunity to really dive into my business more um, rather than, you know, trying to feel sorry for myself or something. And also being able to put things into perspective and saying, hey, this is a global crisis. This is a global health emergency, really. You know, people are dying, people are getting sick all over the place. You know, being able to put my particular situation or my particular worries in perspective um, at that level, I, I found to be helpful in certain ways, um, but also trying to have the perspective of viewing it as an opportunity to grow my business and to get it to that next level. Um, so net, so th that's when, you know, was, was pursuing the, the business full time, which was really from April when our, you know, when things wrapped up until the end of the summer of 2020 and about midway through that, Brian and I um, launched this podcast, Tennis IQ, um, which has also been, you know, really something that, you know, had it not been for the pandemic, um, we probably wouldn't have, ever started this we, we wouldn't have necessarily connected and had the idea to to start this podcast so that has certainly been um w one of the one of the biggest bright spots as well uh, that the the pandemic and that the, this change in all of our lives has brought me personally and um so i was you know spending time on you know trying to grow the business and then towards the end of the summer an opportunity came up at the international tennis hall of fame to coach, to coach there. Um, and I started in the beginning of September as an assistant tennis coach in Newport at the International Tennis Hall of Fame. And that was really a, a great opportunity for me to further hone my, my skills as a tennis coach, where I worked with all different types of players, um, kids as young as three or four years old, um, adults in their, you know, all the way up to their 70s and 80s, um, and everything in between. Um, including, you know, high, higher level players, four, five, five, oh, players, um, and, and, you know, many players on the two, five to three, five level. Um, and I, I, at a certain point, 
um, I would say it was really over the summer um, going into the early fall, I came to the conclusion that as much as I really enjoyed coaching tennis, which I do, I certainly get a lot of fulfillment out of it. If I were to look ahead, you know, a couple of years ahead, three years ahead, five years ahead, 10 years ahead, really what I want to be doing, really where, what I'm most passionate about and where I, what I feel the most purpose with is sports psychology is really the, the mental aspect of the game. And, you know, knowing that this is something that I have found meaningful since really since I was a teenager, um, I, you know, I, I, it became clear to me that what I wanted to do and what I, what I do want to do is to pursue sports psychology fully. So last month I left the tennis hall of fame and have been pursuing sports psychology and pursuing my business tiebreaker psych um, on a full-time basis, which is really other than those few months last summer um, towards the start of the pandemic, the first time I've been able to do that and not been managing, you know, two things at the same time, you know, growing, trying to grow my business alongside um, another job, a full-time job. And it's been great. It's been, it's been almost a month now since, since leaving, since going full-time. And um, it's been, it's been really exciting, you know, certainly scary in a certain way, um, leaving a certain level of security, but also, you know, knowing that um, this is really what I, what I'm most passionate about, what I want to be doing and was ready, ready to take the leap. Um, and one other thing I would add is um, when Brian and I launched this, this podcast last July, um, could not have imagined that it would get to this point today um, where we're at right now, where, you know, over 60 episodes in, been putting out an episode just about every week, um, have had you know, ton of, of awesome, really inspiring guests of, of many different backgrounds and, you know, a, and couldn't have imagined it, it getting to this point. And, uh, you know, want to thank you, Brian, for, you know, for all the support along the way, for guidance at, at many times um, and, you know, really looking forward to um, continuing with, with the podcast and, and seeing, you know, seeing where we can, where we can take it. But uh, that's a little bit about, about my background and my story and uh, looking forward to the rest of this conversation and, and interview. Well, I appreciate the kind words, Josh. I mean, it's been, um, it has been a great time doing this podcast. I've learned a ton and, um, you know, we've come to collaborate on a bunch of different things, not just, not just this podcast. And I enjoyed listening to your story. There are definitely some parallels that we have. And, um, and then there, there are some, some big differences. What I really like, though, is how you really early on knew, maybe by going to Clark and seeing the psychology and then marrying psychology and tennis together to then pursue sports psychology. And I think that's, that's great that you've been able to do it at such an early age. Um, and now that you're practicing, um, you know, full time, which I also think is, is really good. I think, you know, we, we had some discussions about, about that. And um, I was totally supportive of that because that is a parallel that I went through also. Um, and uh, at some point you got to, you realize that you have to go out and, and do it and, and practice it and, and be seen as a sports psych professional and not just be seen perhaps as uh, someone I could take private lessons with. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, if, if sports psych is what you want to do, then that's what you should do. And I totally commend you for having the courage to go out and do it. And I know you're going to be very, very successful at it. Um, so there's been a few years now between, you know, when you did your dissertation and you're practicing now, 
Um, how would you say your conceptualization of sports psychology and mental toughness has evolved over the years? Cause I'm sure it has. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. So when I did my dissertation, um, a couple of the findings, a couple of the biggest findings were that you want to, you want to try to find ways to add pressure to practice and try to, you know, simulate match-like environments as much as possible. So this is something that I've, I would say I've tried to implement um, both within my coaching on court and also within sports psychology. So um, I can say, you know, at, at Sacred Heart, for those two years, there's something we certainly tried to implement, both by adding more match play, by adding more consequences to practice at times, manipulating scoring rules, um, which are, these are also things that I've done, you know, on a more private level in terms of coaching, but also, um, you know, within when, when I talk to athletes, trying to impart on them, you know, how important it is that when they're training to try to simulate, number one, that environment, but also that, that mindset that they really want to have. Um, so that when they're in a competitive environment, when they're in a tournament or when they're playing in a match, it, they feel like they've been through it time and time again because they have. They've gotten those repetitions in and it doesn't feel so, so new. So that, that's one, one takeaway, I would say, from the, from the dissertation and from that process. But I would say one of the biggest changes that, that in terms of my own perspective um, has related, number one, to coaching, but also has, has actually taken place through, um, I would say this awakening that's been happening within sports as a whole, um, particularly professional sports as it relates to, to mental health, but also as it relates to performance and knowing that whoever I'm working with is going through a lot. They're, 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 you know, people, people are going often through more than meets the eye. And knowing that, knowing, you know, that when I work with somebody, I have a great opportunity, um, but it, it's also a, it's a privilege, right? So this is, you know, I have an opportunity to help somebody along their pathway to hopefully help them, you know, get a little bit better every time they're out there. But this is a privilege and that, you know, they, they're, you know, likely going through many things. Um, so I, I would say when it, as it relates to mental toughness, I think it's important to know, and I think I've come to the, the realization more recently that it's not a straight line, right? The, the line to from where you're at right now to where you want to be is not a straight line. It, it looks more like almost like the stock market, I, w- I would Sorry. compare it to, where there's the other, the ups, there are the downs, you know, even with a given, within a given day or, or within a given week or within a month or a year. But if you can zoom out, you can see the trend of, of which way things are going. And I, I think that can be really hard to realize that or remember that in the moment, especially when things are, are not going well, when you have a lot going on, when maybe you're in a slump or coming back from an injury. I think it can be really tough, um, tough to, to keep that perspective and tough to remember how far you've come and that all the progress that you've made. But being able to maybe zoom out, see it from an outsider's perspective, maybe talk to some of the people closest to you, have some of those, you know, deeper conversations about where, how far you've come, about where you want to head, about, you know, maybe even having conversations with people close to you about what they see as, you know, your strengths and weaknesses. Um, Because I think people, it can be easy in those moments to forget about your strengths or forget about what you're really doing well. Um, 
so I, you know, I, I try to try to utilize that, that perspective when working with, with athletes now and no, now my perspective of mental toughness is not so much just, you know, that, that you're going to be tough every day and, you know, impenetrable and not ever, you know, have any challenges, but it's, Hey, I, I now have the, the mental fortitude, you know, mental toughness really is that, that fortitude of being able to withstand, you know, whatever life throws at you, those ups and those downs, um, knowing that it won't look the same every day, knowing that you won't necessarily, you know, feel as courageous every day, every single day, or um, be able to bring that same level on the court. But over the long period of time, being able to withstand it and be resilient um, is sort of the, has, has become more the, the understanding of mental toughness that I now embody and the way that I understand it rather than, you know, somebody who's tough all the time or never shows any negativity or, um, you know, is, is more stoic and even keeled, which I think are, are, can, can be certainly positive qualities, but I think having a more maybe realistic understanding of it knows that, you know, every person is, is different. Every, it, um, you know, some people show more emotions than others, but that, you know, mental toughness really is that ability to withstand all of the challenges of life and still continue to grow and continue getting, you know, that 1% better every day that we strive for. In your answer, I hear themes like empathy, recognizing that um, not only is tennis difficult, but life is difficult. And, um, you know, our, I think our position in sports psych practitioners is to have a lot of empathy for the people we work with to recognize that what they do is not easy. It takes a lot of courage, et cetera. And I also hear elements around like mental flexibility. It's not so much, like you said, just being, being this tough thing, but it reminds me of a Bruce Lee quote that I'm sure I'm going to butcher, but it has more to do about how, you know, the, the willow or the bamboo tree, you know, because of the way it, it shapes with the wind is actually a much stronger tree than say, you know, one that is more rooted into the ground. Right. Um, and you know, almost like be like water as well. You know, water shifts and moves. And it's very flexible, but it's one of the most powerful forces on the planet. Um, so I think those are, you know, that those are just some things that popped in my head, Josh, you know, as you were talking about your sort of uh, framework that you have evolved to over the years. Um, what are some, let's say, perspectives or mindsets that you feel are important to pass on to your students or help them develop? Um, I'd say there are, there are a few big ones. Um, number one, and I, I think I touched on this a little bit already, but that, that concept of trying to get 1% better. Um, so trying to, you know, get a little bit better every time you're on court, right? So maybe, maybe you're working on a certain shot. So trying to get that shot a little bit closer to where you want to be, but also, you know, within a session, doing a session with somebody, being able to get a little bit closer to where they want to be mentally, right? Having that, um, you know, maybe, maybe it's that perspective, right? Or maybe it's being able to, you know, after match reflect, um, or maybe it's the preparation, but being, uh, you know, being able to get a little bit closer to that, that full complete picture of really where they want to be as an athlete. Um, so, so that, that's a part of it. And I think what's connected to that is, is really that, that focus on the process. So not constantly thinking about the outcome and, you know, constantly thinking about 
wins and losses and rankings and UTR ratings. Um, not that they're not important, not that you don't want them to be better or, you know, win more, or have a better ranking or rating um, because you're competitive, you're a competitor, but you thinking, okay, I want to win. I want to win. I need to beat this person on the other side of the net. Doesn't ultimately get you any closer to doing that. You focusing on that process of improvement, both in terms of your training and in terms of in a match, what's that process of me playing great tennis today? Um, so trying to, I, I, I try to use that, that concept of process, you know, focusing on the, of the, on the process rather than the outcome. Um, I, I try to use that as one of my starting points, um, to really understand that, Hey, this, first of all, the, what we're doing, right. Me doing a session with somebody, it's, it's not a necessarily a quick fix. It, it shouldn't be viewed as a quick fix where, okay, we, we do a, we talk for an hour and, uh, you know, all your troubles are gone, right. That's, that's not how this works. It's a process of just like you're, you know, you trying to get your forehand to that next level is a process or just like, you know, your strength and conditioning is a process. The mental aspect of the game is also a process and it takes that dedication. It takes that consistency and it takes the training um, to, to, to really get things to the next level. So understanding that, Hey, it's a process understanding. Also, it's not a straight line. There will be those ups and downs, but, keeping the perspective, trying to, you know, get a little bit better every time you're out there every day, every week makes it easier to, to, to get to that finish line ultimately, because you're not going to give up halfway through or you're less likely to at least. Um, so I would say that's a big one as well. And then um, the, the, the last one I, I would mention um, and maybe, maybe mention a couple others later, but is controlling the controllables. Um, and one of the first one of the first presentations I ever did in sports psychology was actually on this topic. Um, I did it at intensity club in, in Norwalk, Connecticut um, with Nicola uh, who we've had on this, on this podcast, who we did an episode with who had, um, invited me to, to do a presentation. This was, you know, something that I, I, I would say I've been interested in or passionate about because I, you know, from both my own observations as a player and, you know, the observations of people I've coached and other people around me, um, I, I, I noticed that people spend a lot of time thinking and worrying about things that they have absolutely no control over. The court conditions, for instance, right? If there's a crack in the court, you're playing on a clay court and it's not up to your liking <clears throat> or the wind or the sun. I mean, the amount of times that, you know, I've heard that somebody didn't play well because of the wind, um, or even things, you know, like the opponent and the opponent's behavior, the opponent's line calls, the fans, right? So knowing that there are all these things out of your control, but being able to determine what is it within your control and what isn't and being very clear about that and then dedicating yourself as much as possible to those things within your control. And again, it's it's easier said than done, right? It's It's easy for me to be um, talking on this podcast and say, Hey, you know, you want to be focusing on those things within your control, but when in the heat of the moment, it's not a, it's, it's often a lot more challenging. So to me, a big, a big piece of this, and I think this really fits into the mindfulness piece, actually, the awareness piece is having the awareness to notice when your attention goes from the present moment, thinking about things within your control, like your strategy or your game plan, like your physical intensity, 
um, like your attitude. So rather than focusing on one of those things, choose something from the past or the future. Something from the past might be, you know, a line call that your opponent made last game, right? That you're still upset about or a decision that you made. Oh, why did I go for that forehand there? That was, you know, I shouldn't have gone for that. Now I'm down love 40. Or why did I go for that first serve here? Now I have to hit a second serve on this big point. Um, or thinking about the future and thinking about what if, you know, what if I, what if I lose this game and now I'm down um, a break here? Or what if, what happens if I lose this match? What is that going to do to my UTR? So um, to me that this concept of controlling the controllables actually really fits in a lot to mindfulness because the my, mindfulness and awareness is really the the foundation where as soon as you're aware of your thoughts and of where your attention is, is your attention on the, the court conditions, right? Or is it on that call that your opponent made last game? Or is your attention on the future and thinking, you know, I, I really hope I don't lose this match because is the coach going to bench me after this? Um, as soon as you notice that your attention is on one of these things out of your control, then you then you can bring it back to the present moment. But until until you notice that, until you're aware of that, then you're going to be lost in thought thinking about any of these in, these things out of your control. So to me, it, you know, being present is that ability to um, to to notice, you know, in this moment, what's important now, right? This is a concept I know we've talked about with Jorge Capistani, um, but also, you know, it's come up in other episodes and that, you know, what's important now are things within your control, like your strategy. Do I have to change my strategy or my game plan based on what's going on right now? Um, my physical intensity, right? Is, um, I, am I moving my feet enough? Am I really engaging my body enough with, you know, with my serve, am I using my legs enough? Um, or my attitude, right? Where's my attitude right now? Am I able to reset after every point and utilize, you know, things like the 16 second cure um, and, you know, really use that 20 seconds in between points to reset? Um, am I able to go into, you know, a high pressure point with the type of mindset that's actually conducive to me performing my best? Or am I lost in thought thinking about, something else. So I think this concept of controlling the controllables and how that really fits in with awareness and, and mindfulness um, is, is also one of the biggest um, foundations of, of the work that I do and, and how I, you know, try to, um, how with working with players, try to, you know, help them become aware of their own thoughts and where their own attention goes as they're competing. I think awareness is a great starting place for any time you're working with somebody. Um, just because I feel like it all sort of flows out from that. Because if you're not aware of these things, it's hard to apply certain techniques and get them to, to work. Um, and, and mindfulness is a good tool in order to do that. But, you know, mindfulness, it's like a broad topic. You know, we, we did do an episode on this, but let's maybe hone it down a bit here because it's easy to say, be mindful. Right. Um, and, and mindfulness is often promoted, especially these days, as some sort of panacea to cure everything that is going on in your life. But, I, you know, I work with some players who they they say they do meditation. They may do it on their own. They may do it with an app. Um, and I, I have a few examples of, of this where um, 
in some ways it's hard for me to believe only because they, they have very noisy minds. They're very judgmental and which are things that when we read about or are told about mindfulness and meditation, that it's supposed to help with that. Now, granted, we don't, we're not supposed to do meditation looking for benefits. The idea is just to practice and practice and practice and see what happens. Um, but I'm curious, Josh, you know, you talked about building awareness through mindfulness. Are there specific things that you have players do? Do you help them engage in meditation, whether that's using an app or doing something on their own? Is it mindful walking? Are, are there other activities that you suggest to athletes to begin to build that awareness and hopefully get to a place of, you know, more le- or less judgment about things and, and so forth? Yeah. Um, I, I generally start with some, some sort of, you know, guided meditation that um, either I do or, you know, help them through an app. Um, and just, just starting very, you know, very small, maybe five minutes or 10 minutes and helping them, you know, notice that, hey, through, through my breath, I can use my breath as a tool to come back to the present moment. So um, talking about some of these concepts of, you know, the, the, the past and the future and, you know, them, them reflecting on this and maybe thinking about situations where during a match they've, you know, haven't been present. And then talking about this concept and introducing, you know, the, this concept of meditation, which I think some players, you know, some players are utilizing on their own. Um, and then once that's been introduced, um, having that almost as a reference point where, okay, you know, in the match, you know, in the match you played or during your training, where, you know, where, where, where are your thoughts? Do you, do you find that they're more um, go, going through the motions of what you actually have to do in this upcoming point, almost planning out the point, going through, you know, the different steps of your in-between points routine, or are you thinking about, you know, something from the future? Um, so I think it can start certainly with, um, with meditation and some sort of guided meditation and there's you know so many great apps out there um to to get that process started um but that that is really the foundation where i i i don't view mindfulness at all as a you know as a panacea i think it's you know i think there are so many different other aspects that need to be learned you know motivation confidence um focus um but i i in my view mindfulness and really awareness is the way I would think about it is the foundation that many of these other skills start out with. So, you know, once you can be aware of your thoughts, then, then you can channel, you know, channel your focus, channel your focus and channel your attention um, towards something that you actually want to something that's important in that moment. Um, once you're aware of your body language, um, and, and, you know, there are certain tools that can be helpful here, like video, um, that once you're aware of that, of your body language, then you can actually do something about changing it, which is going to impact your performance. Once you're aware of what you're doing in between points, then you can actually make an impact. Once you're aware of your breathing, then you can utilize specific breathing techniques to, uh, to increase your performance. So, I I really view awareness as that starting point where until you're aware of something, until you notice that it's, that something is happening, then until that point, then there's nothing you can do about it. But once you're able to actually notice it and be aware of it 
Um, and, you know, the, the training of mindfulness really makes this more possible. Um, but once you are able to be aware of something taking place, then you're able to make that step and, and improve on that, on that area, but not until then. So I, I more so view it as a, as a foundation. A mindfulness activity that I know helped me improve a lot of awareness, and maybe not one that we suggest that often, is yoga. Um, yep. It really made me, because I think as tennis players, recognizing where we have tension in the body is very important. Actually, it's true. That's true for any athlete, right? Um, and in going through yoga really highlighted a lot of that for me, but it also helped me to communicate with different parts of my body so that I could build some of the, that awareness. And part of me wishes I had had some of that earlier um, in my, in my career. I think, you know, one of the challenges of being uh, an older athlete is, is, you know, some of that tension is a little bit more, you know, it resides a little bit more deeply than it did say when I was a teenager or in, or in my, my twenties. Um, but yeah, just building that awareness through, Something like yoga, which you know, we would consider a mindful activity. There's a lot of um, focus on the breath in there. And uh, that is something I have suggested to some players over the years. And I know that there, uh, you know, I do some work at Bryant University. A lot of the teams do yoga classes as teams. And um, almost all of them have uh, derived positive benefit from, from that, that type of practice. So let's shift, Josh, now to thinking maybe about some different tennis audiences that you work with, because I know you work with a, a wide variety of ages and ability levels and so forth. Um, let's start off perhaps with like junior players and college players, maybe the junior player looking to transition to college as well as the college player. What do you think are some unique challenges that are experienced uh, in that demographic? Uh, I would say I would say one of the biggest one one of the biggest challenges, believe it or not, is is the UTR is, is UTR you know ratings and not not just to always be pointing the finger at UTR because I know we've we've mentioned them a number of times, but um, you know UTR ratings and also USTA rankings, right? So players thinking about their I think at that age um, for for good reason sometimes because players are looking to make it onto college teams or looking to get college scholarships. Players are very aware of their UTRs or of their rankings and are often, you know, in comparison with their friends um, or they have to have a certain rating to make it onto a team or to get that scholarship. And I would say that that can, you know, that that can sort of hold that can hold a lot of people back. Um, So I would say that is one definitely unique challenge, but also um, a lack of experience, Um, you know, a a relative lack of experience where rather than having competed for decades um, or, you know, 10 years or however long um, it's for, for some of these players, they've only been playing tournaments for a few years and maybe haven't, haven't gotten into all the different situations that a tennis player can go through in their, in their life. Um, whether that be, you know, playing in a long match, whether that be um, having to serve out a match, trying to come back from being behind, um, playing in a tiebreaker, uh, or whatever that may be. So I think the level of experience can also be challenging. Um, and there, there's certain social dynamics, whether it's high school tennis, college tennis, uh, there, there's, there's always dynamics over 
you know, lineups and, and who should be, um, you know, who should be playing higher in the lineup, who should be playing versus being on the bench, um, dynamics with doubles partners as well. Um, and, you know, oftentimes in high school and college teams, most of the players are, are very close. So it, it can be tough, you know, as it relates to lineups and one player is playing above another player, one player is in the lineup, the other player is not. Um, two players playing doubles together, maybe they have some sort of history um, or some sort of, you know, drama or dynamic in between them. So those, those are, I think, are a couple different dynamics as it re- relates to that age group. Um, also, I mean, you're still, especially as a teenager, especially going into college, but you're still growing. You're still developing as a person, as a, as an athlete, um, still trying to get stronger, still, you know, getting wiser in certain ways. And, um, you know, understanding that and having tennis and the application of mental skills being something to supplement that growth um, is, I think, particularly helpful during that time. And then you also work with players who are older, you know, some who are playing national events and maybe others who are at a lower level. What are maybe different challenges that older players have that perhaps the younger players don't? Um, it's interesting. I mean, we, we did an episode on this on, on adult, adult tennis and senior tennis. Um, I, I, I would say one, one challenge is, and I think you, you already touched on this earlier in the episode is um, can be the body, right. That maybe, you know, aches and pains can last longer. Uh, you have to do more of a thorough job of stretching and really preparing for um for a, a match or for a tournament and also on the, the cool down phase and, you know, making sure that you're really diligent about stretching, about ice baths, about, um, you know, whether it's a Theragun or whatever you're using to, to recover. Um, so I think that, that is certainly one, one piece of, of things. Um, but it, it also, it's, it's almost the, the opposite process in terms of aging into the, the next category. So rather than, um, you know, going from the 14s to the 16s to the 18s, going from the 40s to the 45s. Um, so it's rather than it being the 14 and under, the 16 and under, it's going from the 40 and over, 45 and over, 50 and over, et cetera. Um, it's, a, it's a very different dynamic there. And um, I, I know with some of the players that I've worked with, you know, you like like junior tennis or like um, collegiate tennis, you you end up seeing the same faces, right? You, you have those rivalries. And Brian, I think you know you know better than me in, in this area in terms of you know from a personal perspective. But um, you end up running into the same people over the years, where maybe in junior tennis or college tennis, it's only over you know a few years. But um, you know if you're living in the same region as as somebody else, you know around the same age group, around the same level. Um, you you may, could be running into the same person for for decades. Um, so, I, I, as it relates to that particular age group, I think there's there's other dynamics. I mean, also, um, you know, people are balancing their their tennis development along with their careers and their families, right? So it's a matter of managing your time and deciding, hey, um, do I want to fly out to California or Arizona for this tournament? Um, with, you know, whatever else you have going on in, in life at that moment. Um, where as a junior player or collegiate player, you, you know, your, your focus really is on, is on your tennis development because there are often, um, there are often next steps in terms of 
in terms of that development where for, for junior tennis, you're playing for, you know, oftentimes for that next chapter of collegiate tennis and college tennis, you know, you, you don't generally have a, a choice if you're going to a tournament, but when it comes to an adult, it's, it's on them. It's on them. Do I, how do I want to craft my schedule? How do I want to craft my lifestyle around, you know, around these different things that are important to me? Where does tennis fit into that? Um, and the, oftentimes also, I mean, an adult has a different level of autonomy compared to a, a junior where it all really does rely on them, where they can make those choices of what their schedule looks like. What does their training look like? What does their lifestyle look like in a lot of these different ways? And all of that impacts ultimately their tennis performance and how they, how far they can go as a player. Yeah. I think it's a good differentiation. You're right. I mean, the older players is definitely a lot more about the body. Um, but similar to what you said about the junior player where they're maybe they're working on experience, the, you know, the older player, a lot of them, at least, at least the ones who are playing at the national level have a lot of experience and they can be using their mind as one of their primary weapons. Of course, there are a bunch of adult players who are, you know, two, five, three, Oh, three, five, and they may not have as much experience. They may be new to the game. Um, and so they're even just learning to compete. Perhaps they didn't play sports as much, you know, and I, and I have seen that sometimes with adult players. So I think it's good to recognize that everybody's unique and try to figure out what their story is and, and, and work with wherever that is. Right. Cause we've all gonna, we're all going to have these, these challenges. So Josh, perhaps to wrap up, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the players you like to watch from a mental toughness perspective, you know, we've got a lot of interesting players on both the men's and the women's tours. Um, who are some of the players you're, you're watching today and, and, and why do you like watching them? Yeah. Um, I would say that there's, there's two types of players that I've always really enjoyed watching play. Um, now these are, you know, I, 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 there are also players like the Federer's, the Nadal's, the Serena, where, you know, I, I enjoy watching them just because they are exceptional because they're among the best in the world. Djokovic, you know, some of the others where they're, you know, the, the top players in the world. And it's, it's almost like watching art where they're, you know, they, they've really almost perfected the sport in, in certain ways. But I would say there's, there's two types of players that um, I've always found very interesting to watch. Um, one is the, and this, this might be more based on how I personally play, which is more on the, um, solid consistent side um, playing defense um, where you know the the type of player who's much more on the consistent side maybe doesn't have the weapons of some of the other players but is able to really maximize their potential so I think of a player like a David Ferrer as a as a great example there um, even a Gilles Simone um, we've talked about Brad Gilbert in the past I think he'd fit into that category as well um, so those are those are a couple examples there um, I also really like players that find the, that have the ability to throw off their opponent from playing their best game. And oftentimes these sorts of players will utilize, you know, will mix it up, um, and, you know, utilize height and spin and depth rather than just power. So on the women's side, somebody like an Ans Jabor, who's able to use the slice, use the drop shot, keep people guessing rather than, you know, just blasting, blasting away and necessarily always hitting winners from the baseline, be able to really mix it up and, 
almost be a magician out there. Somebody like a Fabrice Santoro also would fit into that category. And uh, a uh, Jensen Brooksby, who um, has had a lot of success this year, would also fit into that category. So I, you know, I, I think with, with both of those categories, whether it's the player that's, you know, really solid and I, you know, maximizes their potential in that way, um, or the, the player who is, you know, is doing whatever possible to, um, sabotage the, the opponent and, you know, look for ways to disrupt their opponent's rhythm. And I would also add in, you know, not to, th- there are also players that play a lot more aggressively that, that also certainly maximize their potential. I mean, I look at somebody like, a, like a John Isner as somebody who, you know, has certainly huge weapons in certain ways, whether it be his serve, obviously, um, or his forehand, but is able to, you know, have a top 10 career for much of his career, um, despite, you know, not moving as well as some of the other players and despite maybe not having every piece of the game in the same way, but has able to really maximize their game. So I'd say broadly, it's, it's those players that have really done, done the work to maximize their potential as much as possible. Um, and also those players that do whatever possible to really disrupt their opponent's from their game plan. I also look at a Medvedev as somebody where, yes, he has the skills certainly as much as anybody, right? You look at his serve, you look at his speed, but he plays in in an unorthodox way. You could say that that does a lot to disrupt the opponent's rhythm and to throw off the opponent and, and makes it very tough for the opponent to, to play their best tennis. And I think as it relates to the mental game, that's, that's one thing that all players can look to do more for not just looking to impose your own game, but also looking to um, make it as tough as possible for your opponent to play their best. Yeah. And I know we've talked about the fighting combat nature of the sport of tennis and making your opponent uncomfortable and you know, trying to break them mentally and physically really is, is one of the objectives that you should have when you go out there and, and you're pointing out some players who have a variety of tools to do that, not just one thing. Although, you know, like in Isner, he's so good at what he does well that it is difficult to, to get through that, right? So, well, Josh, I really enjoyed learning about you, this conversation, uh, learning about your practice and, and, and what you're doing. So I uh, appreciate you taking, taking the time to, uh, to do that with us. And I um, want to thank everybody for listening for more on uh, today's episode and more about Josh. We'll put some stuff in the show notes about his business and want to get in touch with him. Um, if you have any feedback or other questions for the two of us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check out our Instagram account. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.